Our text for today is from our first reading, 1 Samuel chapter 16. We're also going to be looking at Matthew chapter 1 and some of those names and that long genealogy we heard just a few moments ago. Aside from Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah and the very Son of God, aside from Him, there is far, far more written about King David in the holy and inspired Word of God. There's more pages, far more pages, which describe him and his life than any other person and any other character in the entire Bible. And David was a little shepherd boy, and David was a mighty warrior and king. And David would eventually, at least on one occasion, become a murderer. And at the same time, on at least two different occasions, the Word of God describes David as, quote, a man after God's own heart. And somewhere in the course and the span of his life, we don't know exactly when, but many theologians and scholars believe it was most likely sometime when he was an older man, later in his life, looking back over the course of his life, that King David, who of course wrote many psalms, sat down as an older man looking over his life, sat down and wrote the psalm that is the most beloved psalm, the most well-known psalm, perhaps some of the best-known words in all of the Bible, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian here today, somewhere along the way you've heard the words of Psalm 23. Again, as I said, scholars believe probably as he's an older man looking over the course of his life, this former shepherd himself, speaking of the Lord as his shepherd. And boy, Psalm 23 has given such comfort into so many lives, soldiers and foxholes and the aged and infirmed in the care facility. And I bet most all of you, if not all of you here today, remember how that psalm ends, the conclusion that David wrote. Again, looking over the course of his life, and he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Surely goodness and mercy. I love David's confidence. Surely, certainly, the goodness and the mercy of God has followed me and shall follow me every single day of my life. How wonderfully confident David is in the goodness and the mercy of God in his life every single day. And some of you might say, well, that's easy for David to say. David, who won life's little lottery. I mean, he was a shepherd boy, and God gave him the opportunity of a lifetime and made him king. 
a victorious king. And under David's reign, the boundaries of the kingdom of Israel, it was considered and is considered the golden age. Never has the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel, before or since been as large as under the reign of David, who sat there in his palace on his throne. What a great life David had. It'd be pretty easy for him to say, oh yes, looking back over my life, the goodness and mercy of God every single day of my life. And if that's what you think about David, you probably don't know that much about his actual life. In fact, here, 1 Samuel chapter 16, he is anointed by Samuel with oil. It says the Holy Spirit rushes upon him from that day forward, and from that day forward, David's life was full of trouble and stress and problems. That's chapter 16. The very next chapter, chapter 17, he's anointed to be king, the Holy Spirit upon him. Chapter 17, that's when David faces the dreaded warrior of the Philistines known as Goliath. And then in the very next chapter after that, chapter 18, and to the very end of the book of 1 Samuel, David is there in the court of the king, King Saul, and King Saul in all of his jealousy and all of his rage, his anger and the disturbance of his spirit. He is jealous of David and... Six different times attempts to murder David. To where David is forced to run away and to flee from his family, his friends, his dear friend Jonathan with tears in his eyes. And David heads out into the desolate places in the wilderness. Is there any doubt if you've read the Psalms and the Psalms of David, you know how many of them is David crying out a lament, crying out, where are you, God? And even when David eventually did become officially the king on the throne, his personal life and his family life was a disaster. There was fighting and abuse and dysfunction amongst his children. And he even had a son named Absalom. And Absalom tried to overthrow David. Absalom formed an army against his dad. Happy Father's Day, by the way. <laughs> formed an army against his own father to try to kill his father and remove him from the throne. And you might remember the story of Absalom. He was riding his mule under the branches of an oak tree and his hair and his head somehow got caught in the branches and one of David's soldiers went up to him and killed Absalom and then very proudly reported back to David what he had done. And it says in 2 Samuel chapter 18 that when King David heard the news of the death of his son Absalom, it says the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate of his palace and he wept. And as he went, can you see him walking and weeping and crying aloud? It says, he said over and over again, oh my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. And you see the grief that has overcome David. And yet, despite all of that, at some point in his life, again, probably as an older man looking back, David writes down, surely 
goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life. How is it that David could write that, could believe that, despite all the evidence to the contrary in his life, all that he had endured? Surely goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. How can David believe that? And here's the real question, how can you believe and trust in the goodness and the mercy of God every single day, and especially on the darkest days of your life? Well, I think, I believe we see a big clue and insight in our reading from 1 Samuel chapter 16. Again, the context here, the people of God have cried out to God, God, we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. They literally said, we want to be like all the other nations. We want to have that kind of success. We need a king. God warns them. He also knows, God knows that when they want an earthly king, they're really rejecting God as their heavenly king. And God warns them through Samuel the prophet. He says, look, an earthly king, they're going to take your money. They're going to take your property. They're going to take your daughters. They're going to take your sons and put them in the army and make them fight. They said, we want a king. So God gives them a king, King Saul. He starts off pretty good at first, but he ends up being exactly what God had warned them. And so now God, out of mercy and grace, is now giving them a new king, another king. He sends Samuel the prophet to the town, O little town of Bethlehem, to a man named Jesse. And all Samuel knows is that one of Jesse's sons is the one that God has chosen. So first of all, they do exactly what you would expect. They bring out the oldest son, the firstborn. His name was Eliab. Strong and mighty, a warrior type, a warrior king. And this is what it says in verse 6. That when they came, Samuel looked on Eliab and thought, surely... The Lord's anointed is before him. Here he is. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. God does not see the world, does not see us, does not see life the way that we see. He sees something deeper. He sees something more beautiful. He does not see as we see, and I think we can add to that, the Lord does not work his plan of salvation in the way that we might expect or want. That even on the worst day of your life, his goodness and mercy is there in the midst of it. So the firstborn Eliab, he's not the one. Then they bring out, as you would expect, the second oldest. 
Nope, it's not the second oldest, the third oldest. Nope, it's not the third oldest, the fourth oldest sin. Nope, not the fourth oldest, the fifth. Nope, not the fifth, the sixth. Nope, not the sixth, the seventh. Nope, not him. Samuel starts looking around. Hey, Jesse, you got any more sons? Where are they? Verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And listen to what Jesse says. Well, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Oh yeah, David forgot about him. Again, happy Father's Day. David as the overlooked and the forgotten son. It says here, there remains yet the youngest. Now in the Hebrew, that's a very significant word, the youngest. The word is hakatan. Not shaka Khan for some of you <laughs> of a certain age. You're thinking it, aren't you? I'm singing it in my head. Hakatan, I know you want to say it, so I'll say it and then you say it after me. Hakatan. Hakatan, a lot of phlegm flying over here. And Hakatan is the youngest. Other translations say the smallest, it's the baby, it's the runt of the litter. And hakatan, really in the Hebrew, it conveys a sense of insignificance. Oh yeah, there's the hakatan. <laughs> Forgot about him. What do you want with him? He's tending the sheep. And Samuel says, you bring him here. I'm not sitting down until you bring him. And it says here that God himself says, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Again, God does not see as we see, and God does not act or behave the way that we would expect him to act. He is always working in unexpected ways, taking the values of this world and turning them upside down and inside out, and he is always up to something so much more beautiful and amazing in our lives, and yes, through the pain and through the suffering than we could ever possibly imagine. David, I believe, began to understand that here in his own biography, the beginning of his journey as the king, and I think David also began to understand this, why he could write, goodness and mercy has followed me all the days of my life, from his whole family history. A dysfunctional family Christmas right here in the whole family of King David. Look at this, if you, if you have Matthew chapter 1. And again, this is literally, the. and some of you, my daughter came up to me after, Dad, I'm really sorry, but I faded out when you were reading all those names. It's like, I know, honey. I know. I'm, I'm really sorry, Dad. 
But this is the way that God is handing the promise of the Messiah down. He says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Abraham, I mean, we, we look, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these are the great patriarchs, these are the great heroes of the faith. Really? Do you really know who these guys were? Abraham, father of faith, good guy, but you know, when he went to Egypt with his wife Sarah, he was so threatened that they were gonna harm him or kill him and take her away from him that he says, oh no, she's not my wife, she's my sister. Great guy. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, who was a manipulator, who was a thief and a liar. Jacob, remember Jacob and his favorite son and the coat of many colors and he doted on the youngest son and it caused violence and anger and destruction of his family. God sees what we do not see and he works in ways we cannot imagine. Then it says in verse three that Judah was the father of Perez by Tamar. I can't even go into this whole story here truly with just children in the room. Read Genesis chapter 38. It is crazy. Let's just say that Judah was originally Tamar's father-in-law. And Judah had responsibilities to Tamar, and he made promises to her that he didn't fulfill. And Tamar, out of her own desperation and fear, then manipulates Judah into completely horrendous immorality. Read it, Genesis chapter 38, and marvel that God works in ways that we cannot conceive of. Verse five, it says, Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, who was she? She was an amazing woman of faith, and she took the Israelite spies there at Jericho and hid them and protected them. But what was Rahab's profession? Let's just say it was one of ill repute. And it says that Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, who was Ruth, a wonderful woman. But she was not an Israelite. She was not what you would expect how God to work. She was a Moabite. She was, the Moabites were the despised enemies of the people of God. And now it's her DNA and the bloodline of the Messiah. And then David, again, this isn't just leading us to David, it's leading us to Christ, to the Messiah. And in verse six, it even says that David was the father of Solomon, again, handing down the promise. He was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Who was the wife of Uriah? It was Bathsheba. And David sinned with her, and then arranging her husband Uriah, who's mentioned here, to be in the front lines so that he would be killed, knowing he would be killed. David, through his murder and gross sin and immorality, God sees what we do not see and works in ways that we cannot possibly understand. And then verse 11 and 12, finally, it mentions the deportation to Babylon, that through the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, the enslavement of God's people, and the death of untold thousands of people, and God is using even that darkness to bring Jesus into the world. Jesus Christ, the truer and greater David, born of Bethlehem, a shepherd who was a king. Jesus Christ, the truer and greater David, who wasn't just overlooked by his father or forgotten by his father, but who was forsaken 
on the cross for you so that you might know you are loved and forgiven and so that through the lens of the cross, I mean through our cross, we, as if you grew up in the church, oh yes, Jesus died on the cross. God on a cross. God bleeding and dying on the shame of a cross. That God takes the fools to shame the wise, that as Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews and it's folly, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and Christ on the cross is the wisdom of God. We have to see our life through the lens of a cross. Sometimes, and some of you here in the room today, you have endured a long dark night of the soul where your tears stained your pillow and you were kept awake and the anxiety and the fear and the struggle and in those moments we close our eyes and we see Jesus bleeding and dying for us and that is the only way we can believe that his goodness and his mercy is yes even in a moment like that. And one last thing. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. The word follow in Hebrew is radaf. And radaf, every other place, every other time it is used in the Old Testament and it's used a lot. Every other time it's not follow. Every other time Radoff is used it is pursue. Hunt. Chase down in order to capture. Radoff is most commonly used when describing one army that was in pursuit of another army to overtake them. What is David saying as he looks back over his life and all of his wonderful days and all of what he endured? He says, surely the goodness and the mercy of God has pursued me, has been hunting me down, is trying to capture me through it all. that through it all, God refuses to let you go. He does what it takes in ways that we cannot understand to make us his own. We've just begun the story of David. There is so, come back next week. There's so much more to come. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.